Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or ramp. Our speaker this evening is a priest of the Melkite Catholic Church of America and pastor of St. Elias Melkite Parish in San Jose, California. Father Sebastian Carnazzo earned his PhD in biblical studies at the Catholic University of America and has taught at Our Lady of Guadalupe Seminary of the Fraternity of St. Peter, St. Patrick's Seminary of the Archdiocese of San Francisco and Christendom College, and continues to teach biblical studies and catechetics for a number of institutions. His dissertation was published under the title, Seeing Blood and Water, a Narrative Critical Study of John 1934. He's also the author of many articles and a contributor to a number of multi-author works, most recently, the Great Adventure Bible from Ascension Press. He's a frequent lecturer, of course, at the ICC and also a teacher in our Magdala Apostolate. Father Sebastian Carnazzo, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be here, Annie. And let's begin in prayer, taking our cue from Peter's introduction, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and to those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. At least someone's got their mic on. Okay, so let's begin. We have a lot to cover. We have two hours. I never have enough time. You know how it is, but we're going we're gonna to do it what we can with this. We're going to be doing a general introduction to First and Second Corinthians. We're going to spend most of our time in 1 Corinthians, and uh, that's today and then a little bit next week, because it is really the most important of the two epistles. The second epistle, as you will see once we built our foundation with 1 Corinthians, the second one is relatively easy to understand and read, and I'll give you the information you need to do that, and we'll go through the highlights and the key points of that epistle as well next time. But we're going to spend most of our time together looking at 1 Corinthians, because there is so much here that needs to be dealt with. So, first of all, when we're looking at a book, any piece of literature, I don't care what it is, I don't care if it's an article in a magazine or a newspaper, you need to know, or you need to answer really three questions as best as you can. Who is the author? Who is the intended audience? And what is the purpose of writing? Author, intended audience, purpose of writing. I say intended audience, that this is technical language and biblical studies, intended audience, because people say, well, I'm the audience, right? So I remember one time I was giving a lecture, I don't know where it was, somewhere on the East Coast or something, and at a Roman Catholic parish on the Feast of Peter and Paul, 
And so I was talking about Peter and Paul and their what they did and their lives and their and their contributions in Testament. And and I was talking about when I got to Peter, I was talking about uh, oh, I'm sorry, I was talking about Paul, his epistles and his letter to the Romans, as one of the things he wrote. As I'm talking, and then at the break, this lady asked me, "Should I just I'm just not tracking with you? What do you mean?" She said, "Well, you said that the the letter." Like, for example, Romans was written to some audience 2,000 years ago? Yeah. Remember the names are listed in chapter 16? We talked about that. I've always thought the letter of Rome was written to me because I'm a Roman Catholic. It took me a while to wrap my brain around that one. So we really want to make sure we know who is the author, who is the intended, the originally intended audience, and the purpose of writing. If we're going to follow this piece of literature and then apply it to our own lives. There's no way we can apply it to our own lives that we can distill the principles from the letter to apply to our own lives or some other situation unless we first understand it as the author intended it for his original audience. Okay, so who is the author? Paul or Saul? We've talked about this. Annie can give you all sorts of links on the Pauline Epistles, Acts the Apostles, where we covered these things for the for the Institute of Catholic Culture before. Many of you were already in those, and it's going to include for you in her email today a number of those links. Okay, so, but who was Paul? Who was Saul? His original name, his his name, his given name, he's a, he's a, he's of the Jewish religion. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. But as far as people would say today, they'd say he was a Jew, which technically means of the tribe of Judah, but that's for another conversation. Okay, so he was, his name was Shaul, Chosen, chosen one, probably named after Saul, Shaul of the tribe of Benjamin, the original, the first king of Israel. But he also had another name when he was in Gentile. You know, imagine if you're a Greek and you walk up, you're talking to a Greek and you say, my name is Shaul. Well, there's a couple sounds there that Greeks don't have in their language. So he had to have a name that would also work in a Gentile context, and that was Paul. Many people think this was his name he got when he was baptized. That's not the case. He had both names from his childhood. His real name as a as a as a, a Semite was Shaul, Saul, as we would say in English. But then he also had when he was in Gentile context, like just playing with the kids on the street in Tarsus as a boy, Paul, Pavlos. He was born somewhere around 10 BC. So um, and. Uh, he was born in Tarsus, the town of Tarsus. Tarsus is an important city. It's in the northern part of that eastern Mediterranean area. We're going to see it on the maps in a few minutes. And Tarsus was uh, a, a Roman colony. That is, the Roman Empire had conquered it and given it Roman colony status. That means those who were born in it had a Roman citizenship. And that gave them special rights. We're going to see Paul use that on various occasions in Acts of the Apostles. He pulls that card out to get him out of, you know, get out of jail free card, you know, kind of thing. Things like that. Okay. And we've talked about this in the other, other lectures as well. Important for us today is Tarsus was famous, as was the city of Athens and Corinth, for their schools of rhetoric, Greek rhetoric, and Greek philosophy. We're going to see that right off the bat. He eventually moved to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, he studied under Gamaliel the Great, a famous Pharisee of the period, 
known from within the Bible and also extra biblical literature. And while he was there, he became a Pharisee. He joined the sect of the Pharisees. The Jews had multiple sects. Think of Christianity today, multiple denominations. Judaism had multiple denominations, not as many as we have. And they had, uh, we know of at least, you know, maybe four or five we can nail down. Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, possibly the Essenes for sure, maybe some others. And there's probably another 10 or 20 that we'll never even know about. Think of the, the political parties in the United States today. Oh, there's the Republicans and the Democrats. Well, there's also about another 20 that most people don't even know about, right? And you can, by percentage, they go down in popularity. Okay, so the same thing there. So he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a group of Jews in the first century who were trying to solve the problem, the crisis of Judaism, as they all were. And that was, why hasn't the Messiah returned? And why hasn't the temple been rebuilt by the Messiah and the kingdom been reestablished and all that kind of stuff? There's all sorts of questions and problems. We deal with that in the other, in the other courses as well. The um, time in Jerusalem, studying Gamaliel, we also find uh, there that he is, well, we also hear from Acts that he's a tent maker on the side. This is his trade, his dad, his, dad, his grandpa. They were probably tent makers. So he, he makes his money on the side by, by, uh, by supporting himself with tent making and uses it evangelistically as well. We'll talk about that later. But the, his conversion to Christianity, which is really what's important for us and where we're going to tonight, is sometime after the death of Stephen, Paul, Saul, moved to Jerusalem sometime before the death of Stephen. We don't know how long before. I would guess maybe a year or two, a few years. It's hard to nail it down. He doesn't seem to have had any direct interaction with Jesus. He doesn't say that in anywhere in his epistles. We don't have a sense of an axe. And so if Jesus died somewhere around 33 and Stephen died somewhere around maybe 34, you know, if you want to kind of nail it in there, maybe he, he came somewhere in between. Maybe he came on a pilgrimage. I don't know. Hard to say. We don't, we don't really know, but he was certainly there at the death of Stephen. He was the foreman on the job. That fact that they laid their coats at his feet, that means he wasn't just walking by and they said, hey, can you hold our jackets, please? That means he was in charge of the stoning. So he must have been there for a while and, and known by the Sanhedrin to have that kind of authority to, have a, to oversee a stoning. So, you know, maybe a year, maybe two years. Maybe he was there during the time when Jesus was there. It's hard to know. We don't, we don't have that information. His conversion was somewhere after the death of Stephen. Stephen died somewhere around, like I said, around 34, we'd say maybe. This is, you know, you can give or take six months or a year. And so, and then, so the conversion, maybe around 35, the conversion of Paul, about 35 possibly. This, this is a lot of guesswork. But when we get into now the life of Paul as a Christian, we have a lot of details and some dates. So if you open up your Bibles now to Acts chapter 13, we begin with the story of Paul for, for what we're doing here. So this is Acts chapter 13. We hear about Paul's first journey, and Annie's going to pull up that first map there for us to look at Paul's first journey, not only in the text, but also in 
uh, in living color. Look at that. Okay, so this is from the Ascension Bible. I like the map. I'm biased, of course. I don't get any royalties from this, so I can still say I like it. All right, so anyway, so the uh, the uh, this is the Ascension Bible map they made for them. Uh, journey one of Paul. He takes off from Antioch, goes to Cyprus, from Cyprus into Asia Minor. He founds churches in Antioch of Pisidia, in Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, and then as he reverses course, that's the red line, oh, sorry, the yellow line, and then comes back. That is a nice map. Look at that, two different colors. I was so frustrated in all my studies of, of the Bible uh, in my younger years that the maps of Paul were like these piles of spaghetti. So I want to make sure that it was perfectly clear there for that Bible. Anyway, so there it is. Uh, now, we talked about that journey in detail in the study on Acts the Apostles for the ICC. And Andy's going to send that to you as a link if you want to do that, okay? So that is recorded in Acts chapters 13 and 14. In chapters 15, Paul eventually is now, he's come back to Antioch, and now he's in Jerusalem dealing with the crisis of the Judaizer heresy. We dealt with that in other lectures, uh, most recently, just recently the on the law, the subject of the law. Again, Andy will send that to you. And uh, in Acts chapter 15, they deal with this crisis where they're trying to say the Gentile Christians, they got to be circumcised to keep kosher. They really want to be saved. That's a heresy. And again, as I said, we talked about it other times. It does not, that particular heresy, surprisingly enough, does not come up in 1 Corinthians, although a lot of other ones show up. All right, in chapter 15, verse, six, uh, verse 36, really basically chapter 16, we start our second journey. And Annie can pull that up now for you. And on that second journey of Paul, recorded in chapters 16 through uh, 18, halfway through 18, we see Paul leaving Antioch now on foot, traveling through Asia Minor, visiting the churches of Derbe, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, Pisidia, and eventually now, and this is important for us, traveling over into Macedonia from Troas, he goes in, he founds churches in Philippi. Thessaloniki, and Berea, and then eventually by boat heads down. Remember, you, you, again, Acts the Apostle talked about this. He headed down by boat. He had to get out of there fast because of, of the threat, uh, threatens, to his, uh, threatens to his life. And then in Athens, he gives that great lecture in the Areopagus where they laugh at him. He's in the Areopagus in Athens. Remember in Athens, he says, he, he's, he's speaking to them about the one true God. And then they said, hey, this guy seems pretty smart. So they put him in the Areopagus, which is an outside of the city, up on a hill, it's still there today, a place where they would gather for educational purposes. And they would listen to speakers and things like that. Today, the Areopagus is still there today, and local Greeks in Athens go there just to hang out and have lunch and things like that. And so Paul was there in Athens, and they brought him the Areopagus so he could speak to a huge crowd of people. When he mentioned that Jesus was risen from the dead, they started laughing at him. And that was the end of his lecture. That's made very important for us. He eventually goes to Corinth, you can see on the map there. And in Corinth, he founds a church there out of a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue. Huge group of Jews there in Corinth. He eventually, by boat, goes to Ephesus, and eventually back to uh, return and begin his third journey, which is important for us now. So if you look in, in Acts chapter 18, 
Acts chapter 18. Hopefully you have a note if you've been with us from the other lectures. Acts chapter 18, verse 23. Put a little Roman numeral three there for you. That's the beginning of his third journey. And as you read in Acts, and Annie's going to pull up for us now the third journey. If you read in Acts chapter 18, verse 23, you can see that he leaves Antioch. He heads off through, he, he visits these churches in Galatia, Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lister, Derbe, and he ends up in Ephesus. And he wrote a letter back to the churches of Galatia, that is, Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lister, Derbe. That's called the letter to the Galatians. We've talked about this in other lectures. But while he was in Ephesus, a boat arrived from Corinth with a group of Christians from the church in Corinth who were trying desperately to find Paul because the church in Corinth was divided into multiple groups, not only just divided like according to personalities or whatever, or emphases, but according to different theological perspectives to the degree of heresies versus orthodoxy. And so a group of Christians of those who were favoring Paul got in a boat and they brought a letter from their particular group in Corinth reporting to the problems in Corinth. And they found Paul in Ephesus. They had heard there's boats going from Ephesus to Corinth regularly. These are two port cities. So the church in Corinth finds out that Paul is now in Ephesus. He's been there for a while and the Christians are reporting this. So they get in a boat, they write a letter and they get in a boat and they travel from Corinth to Ephesus and they deliver a letter to Paul, which documents the problems going on in the church in his absence since he founded it. As you can see on the map, Paul's eventually going to go to Corinth again on his third journey. But in between Ephesus and his arrival in Corinth, he writes two letters called 1st and 2nd Corinthians. The first letter is a reply to the letter he received in Ephesus. The second letter we'll talk about next week, he wrote in Macedonia just before he arrived in Corinth. Okay, now, and again, you want the dates and the time and all that kind of stuff and those travels. We did all that in the lecture on Acts the Apostles. So if you weren't with us for that trip, for that journey, uh, then please go and click on that and listen to that, that lecture on Acts the Apostles, where we talk about Acts the Apostles as the key to the Pauline epistles. Cardinal Newman once said, famous for this, to know history is to cease being Protestant. Acts the Apostles is the inoculation that Luther needed. He read Romans and Galatians without knowing Acts the Apostles. And you can see that when you read his commentaries on the epistles of Paul, he doesn't know Acts the Apostles. He does not understand the historical context of what Paul's talking about there. We've talked about this in other lectures. Okay, so now, the uh, so the church, uh, so the, the three questions, who is the author? Who is the intended audience? Well, now we know a little bit more about that intended audience, right? We know about Paul. We, most people know at least the basics of who Paul is. But the intended audience, the city of Corinth was founded, as far as we can discern historically, somewhere around uh, the ninth century BC. It's an ancient Greek city. It was famous for its... Uh, as a place of learning and trade. It had schools, 
famous in the first century, famous schools of rhetoric and philosophy. It also was a land bridge. It was on a land bridge. If you look at the map, you can see that Corinth is sitting on a peninsula or a land bridge between mainland Greece and Achaia. What almost looks like an island, connected by a little skinny land bridge. Corinth is right in the middle of that land bridge. And so it has ports, it has ports on both sides. It's a double port city. As a port city, then it has all that you expect of a port city times two. So it has a huge mixture and influence of various cultures and religions from all over the world in the, of the time. It also had, because of this, a huge Jewish population. And therefore, they also had a synagogue. And if they had a synagogue, then you know where Paul went on the first Sabbath when he was there. And from his lecture, and you can read about this in Acts, he established a church. Having lectured, preached the gospel to the Jews in that synagogue. The church was then founded on, as we saw in those maps, on Paul's second missionary journey. His letters to the church in Corinth were written on his third missionary journey. And so now, let's jump into 1 Corinthians. So where are you going to find it? Well, it's in your New Testament. Where's New Testament? Well, it's at the end of your Bible, right? So if you don't, you know, you got to make sure you know the New Testament is kind of the tail end. It's like the last chapter of your book. So make sure you're reading the first parts before you read the last part. But um, so now the uh, last part of your Bible called the New Testament, you open it up, you got your Gospels, you have Acts, and then you have the Pauline epistles and then the universal epistle, the Catholic epistles. This is actually just two very important litur liturgical books called the Gospel book and the Everything Else book or the Apostolos book. And so and they've been bound together in our modern Bibles. So when you look at Acts of the Apostles, and you turn, you find Romans, and then you come to 1 Corinthians. So after your Gospels, Acts of the Apostles, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. As you know from the other lectures, this is not the order in which these epistles were written. They're ordered primarily from longest to shortest. We've talked about that in other lectures and more general introductions. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, so author, right? There you go. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus. So not by, you didn't call me, God called me. Right off the bat, you know there's a problem. There's a problem in this community. They are questioning Paul's authority as an apostle. And that's going to come up in this first epistle a few times. The second epistle, that's the primary topic. And I'll point those other, the, we'll, I'll point those out to you here now. We're going to deal with that later, though, when we deal with 2 Corinthians. Okay. And, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. The title of our presentation tonight. Called to be saints. Called to be holy, set apart. The church in Corinth, in fact, this whole epistle, is encouraging them to be saints. Sanctus, Latin, translation of agios in the Greek, translation of the Hebrew, uh, kadosh, set apart, distinct, different. The Corinthians, after Paul established this church, have gone back 
to be the same as the as the non-Christians of Corinth. And so Paul's flinging them back, saying, you're called to be saints, you're called to be different, distinct from the community, the, the Gentile pagan community in Corinth. To the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, Jesus called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is very typical of the beginning of a Pauline epistle. He usually follows the same order. Verse 4, I give thanks to God. This is, again, usually, unless he's really mad, like in Galatians and 2 Corinthians, he usually gives a little fluffy Thanksgiving section. I give thanks to God always because, uh, because of you, of the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched with him, with all speech and knowledge. He's explained to them that the, the gospel he preached to them, as he's going to argue here, is what gives them true knowledge and true speech, not the schools of rhetoric and philosophy of Corinth. Even as the testimony to Christ was confirmed among you, as the gospel was preached, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. That's going to come up later, the, the question of spiritual gifts. Do we have everything we need? As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? His return, his second return. And, and who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of our Lord. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no dissensions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. Uh-oh. Okay, so there's a problem in Corinth. They're divided. And look at this. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. This is Chloe, probably a wealthy woman in the community, maybe a widow, who knows? Back then, men tend to die early. And she is has hired a boat to bring her and a group of Christians, who are the Pauline group, from Corinth, carrying a letter from Corinth to Ephesus. And so Paul, throughout this entire letter, is replying to what he heard from them, and then also what he reads in this letter. So he says, it has been reported by Chloe's people, a well-known Corinth, church, uh, you know, member of the Church of Corinth, that there is quarreling among you, my brethren. What I mean is that each one of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, uh, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was I crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I am thankful that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that you are baptized in my name. And here is one of my most favorite spots in the entire Pauline epistles. This is before there was the eraser mate. I'm dating myself. They have some new pens. My kids have them now. They're, they're, they're a pen. It's like eraser mate, like the old days, but it's almost like a pencil. It's funny. I don't know what they're called. Anyway, they didn't have that stuff back then. So once they wrote it down, it was it. I did baptize also a household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. I, I would have loved to have been in the room at that moment. And so, and Paul's waxing eloquently, and who knows, Sosthenes or Luke or something's right now. Paul, slow down, slow down, Paul. Paul, wait, Paul, you baptized the whole house of Stephanus. Don't you remember Stephanus? His mother cooked that lamb for us. Oh, yeah. Okay, put that in there. I, 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 but I don't remember who else I did. And then he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, 
and not with eloquent wisdom. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, we don't have time to apologetics. Andy's going to send you. There's two apologetic lectures I've done for the ICC that are just on that subject alone. Sometimes Protestants will use this, mainly Zwingliness of the Baptist uh, derivation. Uh, that, that somehow baptism, ironically enough, is not critical. But uh, that's not what Paul's saying here. This is a Semitic way of speaking to say this versus that. It's not the way we do that in English. It's this is more important than that. I could give you a thousand examples. We've done this in other places. we got to move on. So, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach. Again, if you use the, what's, ironically enough, the Baptist argument here, that baptism doesn't really matter. Well, then why did Paul baptize? Okay, obviously you have a problem there. So, what Paul's saying here is, I was not sent first and foremost to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Because there's no one to baptize unless you preach the gospel first. He says, but not with eloquent wisdom. And now we get into the problem here that we already, it was hinted at earlier, speech and knowledge, not with eloquent wisdom, fancy thinking, right? So you got rhetoric, philosophy wrapped up right there in one. Unless the cross of Christ be emptied in its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God power of God. Keep track of that language. Now, Paul, when he went to Corinth and preached, as he can explain right here, ironically enough, in this very same passage, that he, when he came to preach, he did not use fancy talking and fancy thinking, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. But Paul right now is going to pull out his graduate degrees from the rhetoric and philosophy schools of Tarsus to put these Corinthians in their place. He says, for the word of cross is falling to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of Christ. Hold on to definition. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will thwart. Where is the wise man, the philosopher? Where is the scribe, the rhetorician? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since... In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach. What's the folly? The cross. To save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, if you're confused right now, that's because you and I were not educated in the schools of rhetoric and philosophy in Tarsus. No, Paul is flying here, but a Corinthian could track with him. He's using terms, he's defining them, and he's just flying along. What he's trying to show is, look, the, look, the cross, the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died and was raised from the dead, is absolute nonsense to both groups. Why? Because for the Jews, the, the Christ is to remain forever. Why are you saying you're going to take off? Where are you going? What do you mean? So the fact that Jesus was crucified is absolute folly to the Jews. That the, 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 the Messiah would die? Well, clearly then Jesus of Nazareth was not the Messiah. But then Paul would say, as the apostles say, yeah, but God raised him from the dead. 
Oh, why didn't you tell me that in the first place? Thank you. Because Jews believed in resurrection. They believed in the eternity, immortality of the body, that God intended that for all eternity. Oh, he was raised from the dead? Oh, this is good. Tell me more now. But the Gentile listening would start laughing. Because for the Gentile, they're all dualists. You don't want to be raised from the dead. You want to die and get out of this body and away from this earth and fly off into the, you know, push the plants or all these spirit parrots. And so the resurrection of the body of Jesus is absolute nonsense to a Gentile. So it's it, you're preaching to Jews and Gentiles, and they're laughing at you for very different reasons. And so he says, I love this, this last line, verse 25, for the foolishness of God, it, he says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, right? The good news of Jesus Christ destroys the, 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 the foolishness, the weakness, all these crazy ideas of the Jews and Gentiles. For consider your calling, brethren, for not many of you were wise according to your worldly standards, not many of you were powerful, not many of you were noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and is despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. Therefore, as is written, that him who boasts, boasts of the Lord. When I came to you, brethren, so now he says, I'm sure that they're listening to this letter thinking, uh, that's not how he was talking when he was here. So now Paul explains something, a contrast between how he's talking now and how he was when he was among them. When I came to you, brethren, on that second journey, when I founded your church, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God in lofty words of wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and much fear and trembling in my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit. I'd highlight that, right? The demonstration of the Spirit and, and power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That is extremely important there. Verse 3, 4, and 5. That's going to explain what happened. Paul was in Athens. Remember in Acts, he was in Athens. And he was speaking eloquently. Oh, my goodness. His speech in Athens and the Areopagus is absolutely glorious from a, you know, a, a rhetorical standpoint, philo philosophical standpoint. But they laughed him out of the place when he mentioned the resurrection of the dead. So Paul then goes to Corinth. And he determined to speak to them, not using that kind of language anymore, but just simple, the gospel, as it was preached in Jerusalem, Jesus Christ died and he was raised from the dead. And that's it. He didn't care who laughed at him. He didn't care what. He just kept real simple. And he says, look at this. Why did it that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God? Paul's a really smart cookie. And he knows that while he is well-trained from Tarsus in rhetoric, and philosophy, it is very easy for someone to come in after him who is better trained in pagan rhetoric and philosophy. And therefore, if Paul preached the gospel and it was resting on a foundation of, of pagan or non-Christian rhetoric and philosophy, if someone comes in 
preaching a rhetoric and philosophy different than Paul did or better than Paul did, they could remove the foundation of the gospel he preached. And so he says, I'm not doing that because there's one thing they can't do if they come in after me. And that is preach the gospel with signs of the spirit and the power of God. The only one that can do that is a true apostle. He was a smart cookie, that Paul. Okay, so now we can go on and keep reading here in chapter two. We'll run out of time. You can read that on your own. Some great stuff there. In chapter three, he says, but I, brethren, could not address you, when I was there, as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, as babes in Christ. What does he mean by that? Well, these, these, these individuals here, their background is pagan, the, the pagan cults of Corinth, which is inundated with dualism. And remember, dualism, that pagan idea is that the material world is evil, your flesh is evil, the earth is evil, and salvation is escape from the from the flesh and the and the and the earth in this pagan idea. And so Paul will use that, he'll toy with them here. Because there's a certain element there, once properly understood from a Christian standpoint, that can be true. And that is that yes, at some point you will die as a baptized Christian, your body will be left behind, you will be with the Lord in spirit. But someday he's coming back to bring your soul and raise your body from the dead and restore the heavens, the earth, and a new garden of Eden. So there's for Paul can use that. And as he's talking to the Corinthians, he says, look, you were still in the flesh when I talked to you. For a Corinthian that has a little dualism background, that's an insult. Oh, that's a jab. And he says, you were still in the flesh as babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food. For you, we're not ready for it. So he goes on, he says, okay, look at all the fighting among you guys. Obviously, you're still in the flesh. Oh, he's really insulting them now. And then he goes on, he says, verse five, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Service. He goes on to explain the history of the church. He says, look, I planted, Apollos came after me, he watered. Apollos is another apostolic figure. But God gave the growth. So, it, you know, it wasn't Apollos, it wasn't Paul, it was God. Trying to bring unity to the community here. But he then says this, look at verse 10. According to the commission of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And a, another man is presently, he's not about Apollos here, is presently somebody else who's leading the church there, is building upon it. He says, according to the commission God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and according, and another man is building upon it. Let every man currently take care how he builds. Present tense. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, great. You build on it with, with straw and wood. News going to be burned up on the day of judgment. So he's warning them about the current status of the church there. Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, Paul's warning the, the, the rulers there right now of the church, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and that temple you are. Let no one deceive himself. 
If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, right, earthly Greek wisdom, let him become a fool that he may become wise. That is, forget your pagan philosophy and learn the philosophy of God that is Jesus. For it is, it is written, he catches the wise and their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So let no one boast of men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas or the world or life, that's the third time we've gotten that, those names. So we got then chapter one, Paul, Apollos, Kephas. So Paul, you know who that is. Apollos, you know who it is from Acts of the Apostles. He came and ministered to the church there after Paul. Paul and Apollos are on the same team. Apollos is a, a Pauline Christian in so many ways. He was, he was taught by the, the Pauline Christians. So he's, he's tracking with Paul. He's in places with Paul. Kephas, who is that? Well, that's Peter. And so this is the Aramaic, right? So you have, his name is Simon. He gets named, uh, you, in fact, look, think of John chapter 1, verse 42, and you shall be called Kephas. This is the Greek form of Kepha. Means rock from Aramaic, right? Kef, the Semitic root kef means rock, and the kefa, Aramaic, and you gotta put it in Greek, you gotta put an S on the end, make it masculine. So kefas. So this is Peter. You just put the word Peter here for you so to translate in a sense. But Peter was never in Corinth. There's no information we have that would suggest that Peter was ever in Corinth. It, he, I suppose, could have been, but Paul does not imply it in the letters. It's nowhere in Acts. But if if you were with us for a study on Galatians, you know that the churches in Galatia, those who were trying to corrupt the churches, tried to use the authority of Peter from Jerusalem to back them up. Oh, we studied under Peter, under Kephas in Jerusalem. This Paul, we don't know who he is. He's never been to Jerusalem. So they're trying to use Peter's authority as the as the leader of the apostle in Jerusalem to thwart Paul's teachings in Galatia. There's probably something similar going on here. Although what's ironic is these false teachers that are ruling the church right now, run the church in Jerusalem, influencing it, are teaching something totally different than the false teachers in Galatia, as we'll see. Okay, so chapter four, we don't have time to read this. I want you to read it on your own, maybe. Chapter four, Paul gets into this topic that there's these false teachers there. They're slandering him, and they're accusing him of not really being an apostle. He really doesn't know what he's talking about, because they're teaching something different than Paul taught when he was there. That's chapter 4. Chapter 4 is like a little window into what will eventually become 2 Corinthians. We'll deal with that next week. Okay, now, chapter 5. Paul now says, look, you guys want to criticize me? I think you might want to look in the mirror. And chapters 5 and 6, and even 7 and 8... Paul basically turns the mirror towards them and says, you want to criticize me that I'm not doing what you think I ought to be doing because of the influence of these false apostles. And so Paul begins to catalog for them all the problems that are going on in the church in Corinth that he's heard from Chloe's people. So he knows what's going on there. They didn't think he would know this, but he's got some information. So he begins to reply to that information now in chapters uh five and six. In chapter five, we hear about that there's a there's a guy, there's no children logged in here, uh, who, who's living with his mother, not his mother, but his his stepmother in a certain sense. 
And Paul points out that this is contrary to the law of Moses. I mean, come on, you can't even take it to the law of Moses, really, as Christians. Right? This is called incest. Use modern English. And so Paul tells him to excommunicate that guy. That's going to come up in 2 Corinthians. They actually did. They did what he said. Okay, in chapter 6, he talks about the fact that they're arguing among themselves, that they're taking each other to court. Corinthian Christians going to court against each other. He says, I thought you guys were wise. Aren't you supposed to be really smart, really wise? You're, so, you're not wise enough that you have to go to a pagan to discern wisdom? So he's really getting at him here. This is, this is some good stuff here in chapter uh, 5 and 6. You can read that on your own. Now, in chapter 6, we get into a, a topic I want to really zero in on here. In chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He said, Why are you going to these, these pagans to discern your, your court cases? Don't you have anyone smart enough among your community of Christ, Christians in Corinth that can discern these things? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you do not be deceived? Neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, and the RSV I'm reading from here skips a verse, nor pedophiles, or transgenders, or you can translate different ways, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. We could have a whole study on that topic. But look what he says next, and this is so important. And for our day today, look at this. I would memorize verse 11. And such were some of you before Paul got there. Some of the Corinthians were in those categories. But just like when Jesus came to these people's lives and changed their lives, Paul did that. And these people left those lives. By the grace of God, they were changed. He says, such were some of you. And he says, but you were washed, baptism. You were sanctified, laying on of hands. You were justified, reception of Holy Communion, in the name of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. And he's going to send to you the um, lecture I did, a three-part series on the um, sacraments of initiation called Blood and Water, where we talk about that from the early church. Verse 12, and then look at this. You have probably in your Bible a quotation mark. The editors have put this in in your Bible, which is fine. Sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not. They do a nice job with it, though. But this is, he's quoting from the letter that Chloe's people gave, and now he's responding. He's heard in Chloe's letter that some of the people in Corinth are saying, all things are lawful for me. What does he mean? They're talking about going to the cult prostitutes and going to eat food offered to idols. They're misquoting the early church proclamation that Paul proclaimed to the Corinthian Jews that they were no longer under the Torah. But these Gentile Christians that are now in the Corinth are hearing this proclamation that Paul preached, and they're reading it and hearing it in a different way. All things are lawful? Now, the Jewish Christian would hear that meaning, okay, I can eat bacon. But, but for the Gentile Christian in Corinth, that means I can do anything. And so he says, all things are lawful for me, you say, but not all things are helpful, I say. All things are lawful for me, you say, but I will not be enslaved by anything. You say food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 
and God raised, and highlight the word raised, the Lord and will highlight raise up us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I therefore take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Why is that to bring up that? That's kind of weird, prostitutes? Because they were called prostitutes. If in Corinth, typical Corinthian before he's a Christian, his religious obligations was to go down to the temple of Zeus and meet, eat, you know, prime rib on Friday night that was offered to Zeus and participate in the sacrifice, have some beers with the buddies. And then after that, to go down to the temple of Aphrodite and visit Delilah to worship Aphrodite, Venus. And so they're going back and doing that stuff again. And so he says, he says, do you not know what you're doing? You become one with her. He's using Jewish, this is Jewish law, right? The, the, the Old Testament, you become, the two become one, he says. These Corinthians are all former pagans, the vast majority is right to now. They don't have that background in their mind. That the two become one. That Jewish way of thinking from Genesis. And so he says, he says, for as is written, the two shall become one. But he who is united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun immorality, everyone. Every other sin which a man commits is outside his body. But immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which it, which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We're going to see as we go to the, to the end of the epistle. The, the Corinthians are struggling with this concept because they're stinking dualists still. When the Jew came into the church, he came in two handbags. He didn't want to leave him at the door. Circumcision and kosher loss. When the Gentile came into the church, he had two little handbags too. They didn't want to leave at the door. And he wanted to bring them in with him. Gnosticism, secret ideas, secret knowledge that would give you salvation, and dualism. That the universe was created by two ways, two types of gods. The bad gods made the world, the, the, the material world, our bodies, earth, the good gods, the spiritual world. And so for them, salvation was an escape from this world, from this body, to an eternal spiritual bliss. Some of you might be thinking, uh, isn't that what salvation is? I thought we'd go to heaven forever. Well, that's heresy, okay? So, yeah, you may die, and you're, you may go to be with the Lord in spirit, but that's a temporary period. The Lord will bring you back, First Thessalonians chapter 4. The souls that are departed will return with the Lord in his second coming, and he will raise your bodies from the dead, and we'll be raised, we'll be judged according to what we did in our bodies. That's what he's talking about here. And the wicked, who were wicked in their bodies, we toss them like a fire for all eternity. The righteous, who have found the book of life, who have had their sins forgiven to the holy mysteries of Christ and the church, will remain. And they will experience the new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new garden of Eden. And God will dwell with man on earth where there's gravity, just like it started in the beginning. We've done that before, and we'll talk about it again especially at the end of the epistle. Okay, so now, in chapter 7, Paul gets into a topic that is on their mind as dualists. Dualists believed that the body was evil. These are the vast majority of the Corinthians in Corinth, right? These Christians are former Gentiles. It was formed from a Jewish community, a, a synagogue, but now the vast majority of the Corinthian, the Corinthian Christians are dualists. They're, they're former dualists or former Gentiles. 
So Paul's got to deal with that baggage. Dualists believe that not only is the body evil, but anything that has to do with the body is evil. And so dualists, pagan dualists, were usually vegetarians. They didn't eat meat because that was just like adding, you know, you're adding flesh to flesh. It's that you're just reinforcing the concrete walls of your cell. Dualists were often celibates, not for the reason that we have celibacy in Christianity. Totally different. They were celibates because they believed that marriage was evil. Sexual relations strengthened the walls of your cell, your body. And so a dualist who was not married would not get married. If he was already married, he would abandon his wife and kids. Or if he was stayed in the home, he would have no more relations with his wife. They also didn't drink wine. It was an early church heresy of dualism where they would just drink, they had water and bread for the, for the Eucharist, which of course was heresy, it didn't work. But, but they, they would do that because they didn't want to have wine either. Because they saw as wine or alcohol as strengthening the body over the mind, all this stuff. Okay, so we talked about this in the Q&A. But the, so Paul showed up in Corinth, there's a problem. Paul doesn't have a wife with him. When Peter's traveling, as we learn later in this epistle, chapter 9, verse 5, he's got his wife with him. James, the others, they don't wear their wives with them. They're traveling. They're going to leave their wife and kids at home. But Paul doesn't have a wife. He's a full-time Christian missionary celibate. He's given everything up for the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 19. He's received that gift from the Lord. And But, but from a Corinthian pagan standpoint, Paul's celibacy is seen through the lens of pagan celibacy, which was very popular. In Egypt, in Rome, you've heard of the, Vest, the, the cult of Vesta, the Vestal Virgins. In Corinth, in Egypt, in all these pagan centers, there were cults in which the priests or the priestesses were celibates. But not for the reasons we have it in Christianity. Completely different. Because marriage and sexual relations were considered evil. Contrast that to be fruitful and multiply the one God who created everything, right? So, when, but when Paul shows up as a celibate, they're interpreting his celibacy from a dualistic standpoint. So Paul has to explain here in chapter 7 in what is really the earliest and most thorough and most beautiful explanation of Christian celibacy. He explains that, hey, husbands and wives, good thing. Husbands and wives having relations, great thing. And don't withhold from each other, he says, except for a time for maybe prayer. Even there, a dualist would say, aha, prayer is good, relation's bad. No, no. We fast from what is good so that we can focus on what is better. It's not good versus evil, right? We fast from food also so that we can appreciate the Eucharist, so that when you actually receive the Eucharist on Sunday, you're actually hungry for it, not only spiritually, but physically. And so we fast from what is good. We don't fast from what is evil. I hope you fast from what is evil. That's not even fasting. You just get rid of that stuff. But we fast from the good things in Christian fasting to focus on what something that is greater to keep our focus, right? So anyway, so then he goes on, he explains to him, he says, but, you know, he says, I wish, versus, this is verse 7, I wish all, whereas I myself am a Christian celibate. But each has his own special gift, I think the word gift, from God. Grace, charis. Each has his own gift from God. One of one kind, one of another. You can make a little note for yourself. Matthew chapter 19, 
verses 11 through 12. Matthew 19, verse 11 through 12. Jesus talks somewhere. He says, when, remember, he explains that there's no divorce in the kingdom of God, and the apostles come up to him quietly, uh, Lord, are you serious about that? You mean once we're in, we can't get out, ball and chain the whole bit, no key? That's right, boys. Uh, if that's the case, then, Lord, best not to get married. He said, hmm, only some can receive this, those who have been given this from God. Those who, there are those who have been eunuch from birth, those who have been made eunuchs by men, caught in war, castrated, right, slaves, whatever. And there are those who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. Those who can receive this, let them receive it. Matthew chapter 19, he talks about it. It's supernatural grace, right? We are made, it's her hardwiring to be fruitful, multiply. But God gives a special grace. This is called supernatural grace, above nature, to do things that go beyond our, our ordinary nature. And so we have from the time of, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah the prophet was a celibate. Jesus was a celibate, of course. Paul was a celibate. And we have a number of great examples of celibacy from then until today. Very different reason than there were celibates in the pagan dualistic world. For them, marriage was evil. Sexual relations were evil. Something else. And so Paul then goes on in chapter 7. I encourage you to read this on your own. We'll come to a close here tonight. And where Paul explains, you know, the various categories of the Christians that are in Corinth and wherever he is, is that, hey, you're not married yet? You might want to consider if you have a calling to this. If you are married, then obviously you have a calling to marriage. And you should live your marriage life. At, this is your Christian life, your vocation as married in that particular way. And he goes on, explains the subtleties of all of that in chapter 7. If you've never read it, I strongly encourage you to read it on your own. So in chapter 8 here, chapter 8 and 9, this would be a good place to end to get us ready for next week. Chapter 8, now concerning food offered to idols, this gives us right back into that, that crisis that we saw in chapter 6, verses 12 to the end of the chapter. Chapter 8, now concerning food offered to idols. You think about that. Isn't that kind of strange? Like, what? Food offered to idols? I've never eaten food offered to idols. Okay, so we got to put ourselves back in the originally intended audience. We know that all, quote, all of us possess knowledge. He's quoting from what the sayings of the Christians in Corinth are from that letter. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, one is known by him. So he's, he's contrasting pagan wisdom and knowledge versus love. And he says, verse 4, Hence, as to the eating of food off to idols, we know that, quote, as you all say, an idol has no real existence, blah, blah, blah. So what they're trying to do is they're saying, look, Paul, or, or these, these rulers of the church in his apps are saying, look, Corinthians, you can go to the temple of Zeus and eat the food offered to the idols because you know that Zeus is not a real god. And since you know that, your conscience is clear. And so... Let's go get some prime rib. Now, for us, that's really weird. But you have to understand that the temple of Zeus was Denny's in Corinth. Okay, the temple of Apollo. That's McDonald's. Okay, they didn't have restaurants like we have today because we don't have pagan temples. On, well, we're starting to have them. But so the in back then, in the first century in Corinth, in a major pagan city like this, if you want to eat, there's three ways you're going to get food. You go to the marketplace. You buy some stuff, 
take it home and you cook it. That takes a while. Other option, you're hungry, you're on the street, you buy it from a street vendor in the marketplace. You see that in cities today, a little guy out of the cart or something, right? Selling you something, a little snack. But if you want to sit down for a meal, what do we do? We go to a restaurant. That category didn't exist as we know it. That category was the pagan temple. So in the temple of Corinth, in the city of Corinth, for example, you've got basically an ancient pagan city like this was a, a big wagon wheel, okay? You have streets coming in from all sides from the walls, okay, from the rim, from the walls of the city. And those streets are bringing in people from all over the north, south, east, west, farmers, ranchers, bringing in their goods, coming down the cities, going to the center of the hub, which is the marketplace. And as they stop along those streets, they stop and they give a little to the Temple of Zeus. Hello? Hey, Bob, how you doing? Hey, listen, I, I have, a, look what Zeus has given me. He has given me all of these sheep. <laughs> wow, Bob, that's a lot of sheep. Those are good sheep. I offer them to Zeus. Thanks, Bob. We'll just take one. Okay. Zeus blesses you for your offering. Okay. And then the guy takes the rest of the sheep down to the marketplace and he sells them. And then all of a sudden, yes, ah, we're busy here. What's going on? Oh, Fred, Fred, the farmer, you got a lot of barley and wheat. That's beautiful. Zeus has blessed you. Oh yes. I offer it to Zeus. Thank you, Fred. We'll take one bushel. Take the rest of the marketplace. Okay. Zeus blesses it. Okay. So then they go in the marketplace and they sell and they sell it all. And this is how the, the agrarian culture worked and offered their sacrifices. But if you lived in Corinth in a high rise, you didn't have sheep and barley fields, whatever. So if you wanted to worship Zeus or Apollo, then you went down to the temple of Zeus or Apollo and you had cash. You had coins. And you, you offered those coins. You'd walk in the temple of Zeus. Hello, what is it again? Uh, we just like a table of uh, for five. Buddy's never come off work. Oh, yeah, sure. Come on in. So they sit down at a table, and the servants of the temple would offer to them wine and bread and lamb from Bob's lambs, right? All this stuff that was offered on the sacrifice. They had so much to know to do with it all. So they're baking bread and offering to Zeus. They're serving it up. It was a restaurant. It was a restaurant slash temple. And so it was constantly these tables of people coming in throwing their coins on the table, and they would be offered food. They'd eat, drink, be merry, and they'd go on their way. Corinthians were raised in this world. This is their restaurant. And so these Corinthian Christians, are. this is their life. This is where they're from. It's very difficult to excise themselves from that. And so now these new followers, these new, these new leaders of the church in Corinth are saying, ah, you can still go to the temple of Zeus. Prime rib? Okay. Because your conscience is clear. You know that Zeus is no god. And the prime rib tonight, Bob, the farmer, he's bringing it's good. Oh, it's good stuff. Okay, so then look what he says, chapter 8, verse 7. However, he says, not all possess this knowledge that Zeus is no god. But some, through being hitherto accustomed to idols, eat food is really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we eat or not. Yeah, yeah. Only take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For example, for if any one of you, if anyone sees you, a man of knowledge who knows that Zeus is no god, at table in an idol's temple, might he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak? That is, he's not so clear on this whole monotheism thing yet. To eat food as really offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak man is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died 
Thus, sinning against your brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause for my brother's falling, I will never eat meat, lest I cause my brother to fall. Paul's going to get into, and this is for our, our, our talk to, uh, next week. In chapter 10, he's going to build another argument for them. That not only is it not a good idea, it's a lack of charity, a lack of love, to be worried about your belly. Oh, I have the right to go in the temple of Zeus to eat food because I know Zeus is no God. What about your brother who might not be so clear as you are and see you, an elder of the church, eating in the temple of Zeus and be confused? What's more important, your belly, prime rib, or your brother? That's the first argument Paul makes. It's a great argument. The next one is even more severe, where he shows them the temple of Zeus. He says, yeah, Zeus is no God. You're right. Zeus is a demon. And if you go in the temple of Zeus, eat food offered to an idol, Zeus, you're eating food offered to a demon, and you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And there Paul will, in chapter 10 and 11, give what I believe to be, from an apologetic standpoint, the strongest argument for the real presence in the Eucharist. But we'll talk about that next week. Glory be to the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and to age of ages. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Sebastian. Not only did we learn so much about Paul's letter to the Corinthians here, but we were so entertained. Thank you. Father Sebastian, you ready for some questions? I'm afraid. Go ahead, Good. Annie. Give me your best shot. Okay. We'll start with Susan's question. Um, just a point of history. Is there any um, remnants or, or evidence other than what he quotes in, in his letter himself of that letter that Paul received from Corinth? Oh, that would be glorious, wouldn't it? Uh, no. So the only thing we have, it would be really neat for someone to try and reconstruct that. I don't know if someone's done that. If someone would have been Fitzmaier, probably he's dead now. But uh, someone, maybe someone's done that. But you could you could go through 1 Corinthians and try and maybe reconstruct the letter. But you wouldn't really have it because it's just Paul's quoting. You know, imagine the real situation. There's a letter. It's written, it's delivered to Paul. He's reading it, listening to maybe Closefield read it to him, or he's reading it. And then he says, you know, Luke, get a pen. And he replies, and he quotes from passages in the letter, maybe direct quotes, some places maybe summarizing. So you really couldn't responsibly reconstruct the letter as it was and say, okay, we have it from these little quotes. The other part that becomes difficult is the little quotation marks in your English Bible there, or in the RSV that I was reading from, while they're there and they're done very well, those are not there in the Greek text. There are no such things as quotation marks in Greek. That's a modern device. So there are indications in Greek, grammatically, that you're dealing with a quote, direct or indirect, but it's not so precise as quotation marks as we have in English. So sometimes when you have a quote in the Greek text, someone who is a translator might not pick it up. That's actually a quote. And sometimes they might think it's a quote and it's not a quote. It's so a classic example of this is in Matthew uh, chapter two, where uh, we have in the English text, 
And this was to fulfill what the prophet said, quote, in the English text, he shall be called a Nazarene, end quote. That's not what's there in the Greek. The um, It's that he would be called a Nazarene. So if you want to put quotation marks in it, you just put over the word Nazarene. It's an indirect quote, uh, if you even want to put quotation marks. And so that's led to all sorts of confusion. People looking in the Old Testament for that quote, it's not there. But the word Nazarene is, if we go back and we look at the Greek translation from the Aramaic, from the Hebrew, Nazarios, Netzer, talked about in his classes, goes back to Isaiah chapter 11. But um, so sometimes we can get ourselves in trouble with our English translations or our little quotation marks because it's a translator's guesswork somewhat to the degree that they know their Greek. And it's not perfectly clear in the Greek. So you kind of got to really be careful with it. Uh, there's a spot there in chapter seven, which many commentators suggest, and I, I think it makes sense in chapter seven, where most Bibles do not have quotation marks. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is well for a man not to touch a woman. That probably should be reworded, in my opinion. There's some translators suggest to put this this way. Now, concerning the matters of which you wrote, following upon the previous section, quote, is it well for a man not to touch a woman? Or maybe it's their statement. It is well for a man not to a dualistic idea. And then Paul then responds, end quote, let me explain, right? The kind of thing. So there might be actually in spots in our English text where there maybe should be some quotation marks, we don't even have them. So you kind of just, it's, and it's supposed to be only easy questions. Well, it was interesting though, right? Yeah, I guess. The answer was, no, we don't have the letter in its entirety. No, we don't. Okay, good to know. All right, Bing asks, what would be a, a key message to the Corinthians that St. Paul uniquely shared to them and not to any other groups? Say that again. Are there any messages that St. Paul had to the Corinthians um, that were unique to the Corinthians and weren't sent to any other groups? Oh, I love that question. Uh, let me. So first of all, when Paul preached the gospel, wherever he went, he preached the gospel in its fullness, right? He may have tailored it to his particular audience, but he always preached the fullness of the gospel. What we would want to avoid, which you're not saying, but it may be in the questioner's mind that somehow what we have in these letters is what Paul said to these communities. We have to make sure we understand that when Paul went to Corinth, he spent months and months with them on two different trips preaching the gospel. The little letter we have is a hint at something regarding that. So, for example, Paul was in Thessaloniki. He, he, he preached the gospel to them. He wrote two little tiny letters called First and Second Thessalonians. But if we think that First and Second Thessalonians is his letter, is his gospel preaching to the Thessalonica, then we're going to miss the boat here. The letters that Paul wrote are simply in response to either problems he hears about in communities or encouragement about good things that were going on as communities. First, letters of the Philippians, that's the only one that falls in that category, tragically. So the um, so when we look at the point epistles, we cannot gather the, the fullness of the gospel from them. And there's two passages, and this is dealt with in those apologetics links that Andy's going to send you, um, where, 
that surely make clear to us from Paul that if we're going to try and discern the Pauline gospel as it was preached simply from these epistles, we're going to get only a hint of it. And it's only from the responses to issues going on in the communities. Paul went there and preached the gospel in the fullness. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, I commend you, Corinthians, for you hold to the traditions as I handed them on to you by, uh, as I handed them on to you. Now, he's being nice there because they really didn't hold on a lot of stuff. But if you look in chapter 11, he's talking about the liturgical gathering, how women should be dressed properly. The, women, the married women should be indicating they're married. They should wear their wedding ring. In the old days, that was a veil. And, the, um, and then also that they need to, to conduct themselves properly as, at like a Jewish Passover. This isn't time to be eating and drinking and having a party, a, a Greek party in Corinth. This is, a, this is a time to remember the death and resurrection of the Lord. So when he talks about tradition in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he's talking about the liturgical, he's, as I handed it to you. He says the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. He says, he says, hold fast to the traditions I've handed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by epistle, by word of mouth or by epistle. He's, talk, he's talking to the Thessalonians. If we just read First and Second Thessalonians, if we think that's his preaching of the gospel to those churches, obviously historically it's really silly because he was there and he preached the gospel and he wrote letters later. But sometimes people think like that, not that this questionnaire is thinking that way, but I want to make sure it's clear that when we're looking at these communities, we're looking at communities that were founded by Paul. He preached the gospel and he lived with him. He taught them how to celebrate. He taught them how to baptize. He taught them how to celebrate the Eucharist. He ordained, he laid hands on, on the elders and then left and went on to the next church. These are full sacramental communities to which he later on writes letters to clarify or exhort them or encourage them in various aspects of their faith. What was the question, Annie? I get excited about these things. If there were any messages unique to the Corinthians. Okay, so basically, thank you, Annie. So, so having said that, then, is there stuff unique in First and Second Thessalonians? Oh, yeah. 1 Corinthians is one of my most favorite of the Pauline epistles. There is some stuff in here that is unique among the Pauline epistles. And in fact, if I was just pondering this this afternoon. I was thinking about this. If, if I could only have one or two or three of the Pauline epistles, if they were all to just you know, burn up in a fire, what would I save? If there's only a few you could have. Someone said, you can only have two. Make your choice. It'd probably be Romans and 1 Corinthians. That's how important 1 Corinthians is. If you have Romans and 1 Corinthians, you can basically reconstruct almost everything he says in the rest of the epistles in some way. But we're going to talk about that next week. We'll see why. Annie, what else? Anything else? Yeah, let's, uh, let's bring up Andrew on screen here. Go ahead, take yourself off a of mute and ask your question of Father. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Um, I have two questions, basically. I'll try to make it quick. Annie, it's supposed to be only one question a person. Right, go ahead, Andrew, sorry. Um, you mentioned you talked about uh, death and the body. Like, for example, in Corinthians 4.17, um, you start talking about where the body is, the temple is holy, etc. My question is, in the Latin rite, for example, they allow cremation, but yet... In Eastern Orthodoxy, they don't allow it. Can you elaborate on that? 
because they, for them, the Eastern Orthodox Christians, they believe that the body is holy, and if you burn the body, it's like you're defiling, defiling the uh, the church even or uh, the temple, temple of God. Right. And second, lastly, uh, you mentioned about different types of foods. <laughs> Sorry, uh, that as long as you acknowledge and you know, like you mentioned, like in the old, like with. Uh, you know, you worship Jews, Zeus, but if you know that he's not a real god, etc., you can eat can eat its food. What about today? Uh, for example, if you eat kosher food or uh, food that's halal, is that acceptable to eat? Andy, how much time do we have? Okay. All right. So, first of all, the first question. Um, okay. So, intent originally intended audience. 2,000 years ago and today. Lots of changes, of course, not to excuse these changes, but historically in the church, the Judeo-Christian religion, the body is considered sacred because it was made by God, the one God who created everything, right? So it's good. It's created, no matter, I don't care if you're talking about a Christian body or a non-Christian body, it is sacred, it is made by God. Everything made by God is sacred and good, right? Especially human life. Whether baptized or not, this is human life. This is, this is the, in, in the image and likeness of God. All right. Now, when we die, as you all know, our bodies are buried in the ground. Today, I know you've been to modern funerals. They have the little, they dig with the backhoe and they put the little concrete block the box in and they put the coffin in, which is all lined and sealed. And then they put the concrete lid on and then they put the dirt on. Okay. The worms are still going to get in. But if you get you go back, you know, a hundred years ago, I remember as I was a little kid in our little town of about 2,000 people up in Northern California. My friend and I were walking through the woods, and we stumbled upon the old cemetery of the town that went back like 100 years earlier or something. And there it was, off the side of the road. Well, I never knew us there. We'd driven by 100 times. We were walking through the woods, and there it was. And all the we could see these old gravestones, and then the, the uh, spots where the, gra- the bodies were was caved in because the wood coffins had collapsed. This is before the concrete boxes. Okay, the worms are in there, all right? All right, so by the time Jesus comes back, any bodies that have been buried in the last 2,000 years are probably long turned into um, uh, worm flesh, okay? And then eventually tree flesh. And you die, you die in the ocean, you become shark flesh. Uh, you know, you go surfing too much, you become shark, shark flesh as well. So, eh, so you say, well, why then do Christians, Judeo-Christians, why do you bury the body? Because God made it, and it is sacred, and we bury it. And we do not know when Christ will return. And we treat it with sacred, we make it sacred, we, we put it in the ground. And we have a, a sacred Christian cemetery where we do these things. You know, in the ancient world, pagan world, cemeteries were always outside the, the city. In the Christian world, the cemetery was right there on the church grounds because the Christian death was awaiting the resurrection. And every Sunday as we come, you see those tombstones and you remember those loved ones who are waiting for Christ to raise them from the dead. Okay, so today we have something else going on. And that is that you have cremation, which was from the Far East, part of their religion. Cremation was, and still is, in the Far East, uh, Asia, India to Asia, the ancient pagan religions, and dualism, this is where dualism still is, 
is that you burn the body to get rid of it, completely destroy it so the soul has freedom to fly off into the clouds. And it shows the body is irrelevant, and you also completely destroy it so that soul is free. That's dualism. Today, cremation has, uh, we find it in, in America, in the Western world, and it has started to creep into Christianity. It's starting to happen for two reasons. One, because modern Christians tend to be heretics. That's for another conversation. But, um, uh, but two, because of uh, financial issues. I mean, today to bury a body, now it's all business, right? It used to be on the church grounds. You buried a body. You were a member of that church. There was no fee. You just brought the body of grandpa and the priest was out there sprinkling the holy water and saying the prayers. They dug a hole. Your brothers got in there and dug a hole and they put the body in the ground. They put a tombstone. Your grandpa or your uncle, who was a, a you know a stone guy, he would make the tombstone. It was all that was just part of the family, part of the family, the church family. But today, cemeteries have are no longer part of the church as hospitals aren't as well. It's tragic. And cemeteries and the whole, there's this whole market with death now. And it's, it's big money. I've had very poor people come to me for advice. What do I do? I don't have any money. I have $500 in my savings account and my father just died. And they're telling me it's going to cost me $20,000 to bury my father. What do you do? I don't know. I tell them, do the best you can. But, but, it, it, this is this is it's a crisis. This is a major crisis. So the modern situation aside, basically, I, I, we're not going to solve that, Andrew. But but basically, in a nutshell, cremation cremation historically was a a disregarding of the body, a destruction of the body, so the soul would fly off in the clouds, right? To be for, to be with the to be with the spirit gods for eternity. Um, it was kind of like destroying the prison cell kind of thing. So. In Christianity, cremation has historically been understood because of its origin as a pagan thing and therefore rejected. But we also have to be under we have to understand current financial stuff. And by the way, if you guys know me, I am okay as far as rubrics go and church law, I'm a fascist. Okay, so I'm I'm not a weak you know, weakling on these things. But I also have to you have to understand the re- modern situation we're in. So, but but that aside. That pastoral crisis aside in modern America, which I think needs to be solved by the church in another way, we need to start again Christian cemeteries on every church, par- every parish. We don't need five-acre lawns for our parishes. We need five-acre cemeteries in our parishes. And five-acre cemeteries have five-acre parking lots, but that's another, maybe we can do a whole talk on this. But anyway, that's another issue, another crisis, but in the, in a nutshell— the the cremation is part historically part of the pagan world, and if it's done today by a Christian for a pagan reason, that is disregard of the body and all that, then it is not appropriate. It is not acceptable. And I don't know. Did I answer that, Andrew? Is is that answering the question? What you're shaking your head? You asked two questions. They're both difficult. <laughs> uh, no, you, yeah, you and we're running back. out of time here, so I'm going to jump in and and take over with one last question. Um, yeah. Before we let you go here, Father, which is um, when when Saint Paul writes, "Do you not know that you are God's temple?" Would that have been taken in a similar or a different way by former Jews and former pagans? You're going to end with that kind of a question. That's really difficult, Andy. 
Okay, so I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, never thought about that way. So, but I would say this: that what Paul is trying to make sure that these Christians understand, whether they're former Jews or former Gentile pagans, is that the Holy Spirit dwells within them. But surely, that's a gosh, that's a great question. A Jewish Christian would understand that in light of their knowledge and history of Jerusalem and the temple. Whereas a Gentile Christian, they'd understand it in a limited sense based upon their background in the pagan temple system. But what Paul's getting at there, maybe we can end here, is a, a very beautiful vision of the kingdom of God. This is in Malachi. If you, end, if you go back in your Old Testaments and you go back, you rewind before Matthew, you get back in the Old Testament, most of your Bibles, you have First and Second Maccabees, if you have a New American Bible, you're right there at Malachi, so you're ready to go. So either way, if you're an RSV, rewind before Matthew, you get to First and Maccabees, then keep going, you get to Malachi. If you are a New American Bible, just right before Matthew, you're there at Malachi. Okay, Malachi was a post-exalt prophet, and he had this vision. And it was a crisis at the time regarding the temple itself. But he says this, this is unbelievably beautiful. And I think about this every Sunday as I as I, during the liturgy, incense the church, incensing every icon on the wall of the church, the images of the saints of God in history, and incensing the saints present, that is, all the members of the church there present, that their prayers arise like incense, Psalm 140, or 141, however you want to count. And I think about this as I am here in California, not in Jerusalem. Malachi chapter 1 Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, from east to west, my name is great. My name is great among the nations, among the Gentiles. And in every place, incense is offered as prayer arises to my name. And a pure offering, not just in Jerusalem, but wherever the faith will be. This is a new way of thinking. This is the new covenant. For my name is great among the nations, says the Lord God of hosts, of armies. Whether you're in Front Royal, Virginia, or in Lincoln, Nebraska, or in New York, New York, or in Zimbabwe, or South Africa, or Jamaica, or in California, Yes, even here in California, your prayer arises like incense. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and to age of ages. Amen. May God bless you, and we will see you, God willing, next week. Don't forget to do your homework. Read through 1 Corinthians, at least up to this point. But if you have time, finish the epistle. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.